thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Acts 17, we finished this, the part where Paul has been in Philippi. The people have basically chased him out of town <laughs> or, uh, by putting him into jail and He's released and been asked politely by the government to, to not no longer stay around. Uh, he stays for one more night, uh, one more time to visit the church and then leaves. Um, so starting at verse 1. <clears throat> now when they had passed through Amphilios and Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and, the, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of chief women not a few. All right, so here we are. He's gone to Thessalonica. Now, we find that that is a trip of about 100 miles between Philippi to Thessalonica. Uh, so he's following the coast. If you look at your map, he's following the coast of, of Greece and ends up in Thessalonica. Um, if he did this on foot, it's about a five-day trip. All right, so it's not a short trip. You know, we think 100 miles, no big deal. We'd make 100 miles in... Two hours, you know, three hours maybe. Uh, but back in that day, you figure that if you went 20 miles on a day, you had gone a long ways. Um, if you didn't have to set up camps and everything, you might go 30 miles. So you could be as quick as three miles. Uh, if you had a large entourage, it might, you might, that trip would have taken a 10-day trip because it took a long time to pack up and, and, and close down. So we don't, but it's a long trip that he's making. And so we kind of go, well, he just went from here to here. And we found that in one verse. He, he started in Philippi. Now he's in Thessalonica. Uh, if he went by boat, it was a much shorter trip. Uh, but we don't know if he did, did a lot of travel by boat or not in most cases. Uh, boat travel would have cost money. Uh, and that's not necessarily, Paul did not have lots and lots of money to, <laughs> to spend in most cases. So he ended up. And it says, very interesting, in Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews. Not every city had a synagogue of the Jews. All right? The Jews had blocks of places where they had inhabited, very much like they do even in, in, in our recent days, where they would tend to be groups of them and because they liked to group together and have a synagogue and have a place to worship and have their, their joint protection if people come against them through their anti-Semitism. So he gets to, to the, the place, and it says, and I love this, Paul as, the ma as his manner was. All right? And Luke makes this point. Everywhere that Paul goes, his first visit is to the Jews. And he really did do just as Jesus said. He went to the Jews first, you know, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost ports. He would go to the Jews, and when the Jews rejected him, he'd go talk to the Gentiles. And this is kind of an interesting thing. 
that Paul in Thessalonica goes to the synagogue for three weeks in a row. So this is 21 days minimum that he is going in to preach and teach. Now, you go, well, why would they let Paul preach in these synagogues, especially with his reputation? Well, he was a rabbi. And most of the synagogues did not have rabbi, you know, full-fledged, certified rabbis teaching. Not only was he a rabbi, he was a Pharisee. And not only was he a Pharisee, he was in the Sanhedrin, an up-and-coming member of the Sanhedrin. So he has all these credentials that wherever he shows up, he would go, we have a speaker. We have a special speaker to him today. And so he had the credentials, and he used them. All the time, everywhere he went, he had the credentials. And he, did not, he was not shy about using his credentials to get the gospel of Christ out. And so he, would, he was preaching, and it kind of is interesting is that he was there, and it says he reasoned with them. He caused them to ponder, caused them to think. This is the great thing I love about Christianity is that Christianity isn't just a shut, shut, shut your mouth, turn off your brain, and just believe what you're told. It matches reason. In Isaiah, we're told, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. He, he is a truthful because he is truth. Everything about him is true. When we look at the word of God, it matches truth. It matches facts. It's not just believe because we said. Now, anybody who ever tells you just believe because you're told to believe, you probably want to get a different teacher. Because if they are teaching you the truth and giving you that reason, they don't know enough. And if they're not teaching you truth and give you that reason, you don't want to be there anyway. So you really do want to be with somebody who says, let me explain what it is. Now, can we explain every single thing in the Bible? Nope. But you know what? What we can explain we know is true. And there's good reasons for what we even can't really fully understand. And I've done this many times. When we talk about the Trinity, I'll tell people, we'll tell you that the Bible teaches the Trinity. We'll tell you what the Bible says about the Trinity. And when we get done, you won't understand the Trinity any better than when we started. Now, you probably would understand it better, but you're not going to completely understand it. The Trinity is something that we just cannot fully comprehend because our human brains can't comprehend can we comprehend an infinite God? Well, no, because reality says that we can't comprehend infinity. You know, you go, well, of course you can. Nope, I've been, I've been at the college level when, when somebody tries to explain infinity. And you go, okay, you just explained infinity. What's beyond? What do you mean? Well, there's something beyond what you just said because it keeps going. And we just can't comprehend that. No matter what we comprehend of infinity, there's more. The biggest number you can comprehend in your brain, whatever that number is, <laughs> there's a bigger one. I can add one to it. Worse than that, the biggest number that you can comprehend, I can say, raise it by that power, and you still haven't comprehended infinity. You know, because you can raise that number by, by the power of itself. When you come to infinity, God is infinite. We will never fully understand him. We will never fully comprehend him. 
He has graciously given the word of God to us so that we can try to understand him a little bit. And we will never fully understand him. And I've said this over and over. How big is your God? Well, my God, you'll say, well, he's, well, he's infinite. He's, he's omnipresent. Wonderful. What does that mean? Yeah. And I used to think, well, he's everywhere at the same, you know, he's everywhere. Over the years, my definition is he's everywhere and every time at the same time. So he is not only just everywhere in this world currently, he is with Adam and Eve at, the, at this moment, and he is at the millennial kingdom at this moment. And he's in eternity at this moment. And he encompasses all of eternity. Now, that's pretty big God, and yet that's probably too small. Because he's infinite. You know, we need to be able to understand how big and powerful our God is. And how we cannot understand him. And, and Paul reasoned with the Jewish people. He's making them think. And I don't know if you've ever tried to take a religious person and get them to think. It's tough most of the time. You know, because they get stuck in what their denomination, their religion, whatever it might be, they get stuck on what they say and don't want to contradict what they say because it's a big deal. I know, I know this man, he's a pastor of a church. He's a very brilliant man, but he will not accept anything that his denomination doesn't teach. And if you make a point to him that's opposite of his, de opposite of his denomination, he gets very defensive. So he's really not worth talking to. Uh, because it's a very interesting place. And this is why I tell us, I do not want us to get stuck in Baptist doctrine. I believe the Baptist faith and all of that, but I don't want us to you know, open up and say, well, here's what the doctrine says, so now I've got to interpret everything in the Bible according to what this says. If something is not right, I want us to be able to say, I want to challenge it. Now, I've studied the Baptist doctrine, the key, the key points of the Baptist doctrine, and I fully agree with them. Now, I don't agree with the way all Baptist churches teach the Baptist doctrines, but I do agree with what they say in, on their points. But we need to be looking at and saying, what does Scripture say? The Bible must be our authority first. First and foremost is our Bible. Then what we believe. And one of the things that you can find is people oftentimes put their doctrine in in over the Bible and says, well, this is what my doctrine says, so now I've got to twist something that doesn't match. And we see this with people who believe in hyper-Calvinists. They believe that God is foreordained people and nobody can make a choice for God. Well, that is all wonderful and good, except for all the Bible verses that say, whosoever will. And when you ask them about those verses, they have a very simple answer that's bad. It's whosoever will that God is called. I'm going, uh, you can't add your words into the Bible. You know, and I believe, I mean, I understand Calvinism. I understand all the verses they use, and it makes all the sense in the world, but you've got to be able to fit in all these verses that say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, you can't just add the, their doctrine in. And so we need to be very careful that we don't put our doctrine first, our denomination first, that we look at the Bible and says, this is what it says and go forward from there. And if we don't understand it, then we need to analyze it more and learn more about it and figure out, is my doctrine wrong or am my understanding of the verse wrong? 
of the verse that is seeming to be in contradiction. And it's very important. It's a great challenge for us. God wants us to be good students of the Word of God and be thinking students of the Word of God. And this is very important. He created us with thoughts and ability to think. And he has nowhere told us to turn off our brain. Paul reasoned with them out of the scriptures. All right? So he didn't just come up and say, well, this is what I believe, and I'm going to give you good arguments for what I believe. He, he took the scriptures. What did Jesus do on the road to Emmaus with the disciples after his resurrection? He told them about who he was from the beginning. It means he went all the way back to Genesis at the very first verse of the first prophecy of himself in, in Genesis 3.15 that said that there will come a, a, out of the seed of the woman a, a one that will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. Started that verse and went through the whole Bible, all of the scriptures and said, this is me, this is the... This is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah. And got to the end, and then they wanted him to come in, and, and you know they, they were enjoying the Bible study, and wanted him to continue doing it. He said, no, I've got to keep going. And he did something, said something that they realized who he was, and ran back to Jerusalem to tell them that they had seen Jesus. But he had showed them from the beginning to the end himself in the scriptures. Paul is going through the scriptures over three, three separate Saturdays to tell them that Jesus was the Messiah. This is why it's important for us to know scriptures. Then it says, opening and alleging that Christ must need have suffered. This is kind of an interesting word because he opened or caused them to see, caused them to consider. And he alleged, now this is not a, you know, what we might think, but he set before them an explanation, right? which is really you know, what ends up happening in a court of law. You, you, make the, you show other ways that something could happen if you're the defense attorney. You know, you're trying to show, well, this is their evidence, and this is how what they're saying could have happened other than what they're saying. You're alleging something could be possible. You're trying to get your uh, reasonable doubt in, the, in here. Paul is being a good lawyer at this time. He's opening the scriptures. He's putting the case forward. He's showing uh, Isaiah 53, talking about this Messiah that needs to suffer. He's giving all these different cases that show that we could not pay for our sins, that we had to. He's making the case for them. This is why we're told in Titus that we are to be good students of the word, always being ready to give an answer. Peter said the same thing, be ready to give an answer. We as good Christians need to know the word of God well enough to know why we believe what we believe so that we can tell others. Now, that can be the very simplistic answer. I know that I'm a sinner, that sinners deserve to go to hell, and Jesus died for my sins, and I accepted that, and he is now living in me, and now I'm going to heaven. And that is good. The gospel is so simple that a child can believe it. And the gospel is so simple that we as adults have a hard time believing it. Because we have to accept it 
in its simplicity to really get saved. But I'm hoping, and the, the scriptures indicate that I don't stay in that simple understanding, that I really get to know more about what I believe. Because at some point, somebody's going to try to shake you up if you're you know, with, with their education. <laughs> now, what you end up doing is it's nice to just point them to somebody else and say, if, you, if they're really going to shake you up, you point them to somebody. But if you've been walking with God for a long time, you should be able to defend what you believe. And you should have enough experience to defend what you believe. Now, I am absolutely 100% convinced by scripture that I am saved. Beyond my scriptural is that I've spent 50 years walking with God and watched him change my life and watched him make me a new creation and made changes in me. Just that alone will never shake me that God has saved me because he has made me a new creation. Then I know what the scriptures say on top of that, and there's no way somebody's going to shake me and that I'm a saved person. And this is very important. If we do not know we're saved, then we need to get to know God's word. And if we don't know that we're saved and we have not become a new creation, then we need to, to start looking and saying, am I, a new, am I truly a new creation? And make sure that I am. Because if you know that you're saved, there's nobody who's going to convince you that you're not. And there are people going, well, how do you know, how do you know God? How do you know God is real? Well, if you know them, you, you know, you're not going to have a problem. If I know an individual, nobody's going to convince me that I don't know them. You know, nobody in the world is going to convince me that I don't know my wife. We have a few years together. <laughs> you know, just 40 of them. You know, uh, just a few years together. Nobody's going to convince me that she's not my wife and that I don't know her. I've had a longer time with God. Nobody's going to convince me that, I, that he's my God He's my savior and that I don't know him. I've watched him over the years do so many things for me. And I know what he says. Reason together. Present the case. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. And I've said this over and over. I don't expect anybody in this church to believe things just because I believe them. Now, I'm going to teach them, and I would expect most people to believe most of what I believe. Otherwise, you're in the wrong church. <laughs> but if I had people who believed Everything that I said and it was 100% agreement to me, I, I would be scared because that's not what I want. I want people to be able to get into the scriptures and study on their own and know why they believe what they believe. And, I'm, and I'll tell anybody, I know why I believe what I believe. I'll give you good reasons for what I believe, at least by my consideration, good reasons. But if somebody doesn't believe it, that's great. What do you believe and why? And I've told you all many times, if you don't agree with you know, certain doctrines that I believe, if you don't believe me, you're in good company with lots and lots of great scholars and other scholars that disagree with you. But why do you believe it? And that's important. Paul is reasoning with these Jews and saying, here's what the Bible says about the Messiah. The problem the Jews had with the Messiah is they ignored anything that talked about the, the suffering Messiah. And there's lots of verses that talked about a suffering Messiah, but they would ignore them because they were looking for the king that was going to come and deliver Israel and make it the, the center and make Israel the center of the of the world and make it the worldwide government forever. That's what they were expecting. That's what the disciples were expecting. When they were following Jesus, they were convinced that he was the Messiah, as he was. 
but they were also convinced that they were on the ground floor of the new government. So when he kept talking about dying, it did not compute with their mentality. You know, and Paul now is saying, well, we, know, we know that he had to die. And let me show you all the verses that t- talked about him having to die and be resurrected. And so he's out there and he's going, he's, he had to die. He had to rise again. And he says, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And again, I want to point out to us, and I keep doing this, Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. It is the Greek version of Messiah, the anointed one. The, the, you know, uh, so Christ would be the equivalent to Messiah. So the definition that, Paul, that Luke is using will be Christ because he's writing in Greek. But when he's in the synagogue, he would have been saying that Jesus is the Messiah. All right? Uh, making his point. And then it says, and some of them believed, which is very unusual. <laughs> Many times in, the, in there, there wasn't a lot of Jews that would believe. And I love this, and consorted. You know, they were, persuade, they were persuaded. They hung out with him. And very interesting, it says, and they consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks a great number. You have some Jews and lots of Greeks <laughs> getting saved. And it's still, and it also says, and of the chief women, not a few, or lots of, lots of women. And it's kind of very interesting that Christianity has drawn women to it over and over through the years. And it's an amazing thing that the scriptures talk about women coming to them as often as it does. Because this is a day and age that they're talking about where women are not respected, do not have a place in, in society. We've talked about this. They could not testify in a court of law. They could, give, you know, they could not give witness to something happening. Uh, they basically were property. And yet, over and over again in the Bible, we're shown women, and especially in the New Testament, being prominent. Christianity has always raised the, the position of women. And we see this even in the portions of the world. If you want to see women's rights being, being brought up, you go to Europe or you go to America. If you want to see abuses of women, you go to Africa or you go to Asia where Christianity has never really held sway. And you still, to this day, see women being treated as property with very little rights. Not as bad as it was in the Greek days, but very little rights you know, to them. Christianity has always raised them up. And it keeps getting attacked, saying, well, you guys try to you know, sub, you know, subject women and, and put them down. But Christianity has always raised up the, the position of women. And we see this over and over. Verse 5, but the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows and baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the, city, uh, turned the world upside down are come here also. 
whom Jason has received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city. And when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. It's an amazing thing that the Jews are the ones that keep stirring up trouble for Paul and Silas. It's not the Greeks, and you would think it would be the Greeks. The Greeks follow a pantheon of gods. They would be the one that would be kind of upset that this guy's preaching a monotheistic God who's the ruler of everything and that their gods are worthless. And yet it's the Jews that keep having trouble with him. Because number one, many of, their, many of their own people are turning to Jesus. They're having a Messiah that doesn't make sense to them being preached. And it says, and we look at this, and this is interesting to how many strange groups come together when they come against you. The Jews go to the people that they describe as lewd fellows or wicked men. <laughs> All right. They're not even going to other Jews. They're not trying to, they're going to the worst liars and deceitful people they could find and saying, we need your help. Because in their mind, they're too far above being able to do what needs to be done. So they're going to go hire the people that can. And baser, you know, this, this is actually kind of an interesting word, the hucksters, the low you know, the guys that are willing to do this, they're going out and they're saying, okay, who can we get that is willing to do what it takes to get rid of Paul? Because we can't get our hands dirty to do so. And we think, you know, nothing different from our world today. How many groups come together and you've got the one group who's high and mighty and won't, won't touch it, but they'll mix with groups that are willing to do whatever it takes to cause the problems. And we see it all through our government. We see it all through political movements. You've got the politicians and everything that are way up high and, you know, and they're approving what's done, but not approving what's being done. And probably paying for it and, and instigating it if, if truth was to be made known. And it's not just on the Democrat or the Republican side. It's both sides doing, doing it. And it's not new. The Jews go out and they find the worst sort of the people that they could get. And these guys go out and they gather a, it says company or a mob. They get together a mob and they hype the mob up you know, with lies, with deceit, you know, with all these different things. And the same thing we watch when we watch TV and everything and you watch the news and you see all these people that are super excited about some event. Some event that is blown out of proportion and lies being told, and that's both sides. Both sides telling lies, you know, exploiting events that had happened and creating a mob and mobs get violent. The mob comes up and the Jews can kind of wash their hands up. We didn't have anything to do with it. It was those guys. It was that mob out there. Kind of like the mob that was formed when Jesus was crucified. The Sanhedrin got those people to come together. 
And who did they go after? It wasn't the other righteous people. It wasn't the people that were very strong in the temple. They went after, even though it doesn't say it, they went after the base people that were willing to call off for Jesus' crucifixion. You know, make lies, speak lies. You know, we're going to kind of stand in the back and it's going to be you guys out there that are demanding, <laughs> demanding and we're just going to put our approval on your demands. The Jews are standing back. They got a mob going on. You know, a mob that they instigated. They have paid off or, or instigated saying, you know what, these guys, are, these guys you know, they put the, put the word out and these guys take off with it. And this mob shows up at Jason's house. <laughs> All right, now we don't know who Jason is. He's just a character that shows up in this story. All right, Jason's a very Greek name, so it's not, it could be any number of Jasons out there. Um, and they show up at his house, and it says the city was in an upward, and they assaulted the house of Jason, looking for Paul and Silas. They did not find Paul and Silas. This is a dangerous moment for Jason, <laughs> because they're out there at his door pounding and saying, bring him, bring him out give it to him, and, and it says they found him not, which means they probably actually broke into Jason's house and looked all over his house, however big his house was. How, you know, Jason probably, if he has room for fellow visitors, has a large estate. <laughs> and they're looking for it, and it says they drew Jason and certain brethren to the rulers of the city. And this word for drew is take by force. <laughs> All right. Jason just did not go along willingly. He is taken by force by a vigilante group assaulting his house. And luckily, they didn't take him to a gallows. They took him to the rulers of the city. So somewhere there's some idea that we need to do this right in that mob's mob's mind. I uh, do not believe they had the right to, to go into his house and all that, but and their accusation to the rulers is these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now they don't have Paul and Silas, but it's kind of interesting the, the term they use, these who have turned the world upside down. This kind of gives us an in indication of really what was happening. The Jewish people believe they're turning the world upside down because they're talking about a suffering Messiah and talking about a God of grace and mercy who, who has come and died for you so that you can go to heaven instead of having to follow the laws. So the Jews' worlds are being turned upside down. So you're going, well, why do the Greeks have a problem with this? Well, the Jews' world, the Greeks' world are being turned upside down too. They have a pantheon of gods. They have hundreds and hundreds of gods that are just like human beings, only with lots of power. Lots of strength, lots of, lots of mystical power. And they're telling them that there's only one God. And that this God is the one that created everything. This God is the one that rules everything. This God is the one that is the only way to heaven. And there's only one way to get to, get to heaven, and that's because of this God. Which is very different from the pantheon they believe in. You, you treat your God strong enough that that God might get you into, into, what, into the, what they consider heaven. Otherwise, you end up in Hades, 
which has a God in charge of it. Yeah. And that was their mindset. You, got all, you can pick your God. And they're telling you there's only one God. And this is a big deal because these guys make lots of money selling idols and selling sacrifices and all these other things. And they're coming along and they're turning everything upside down. No matter who you, what you believe in, they're turning it upside down. And this is the history that we're given of Christianity. It turned the world upside down. And it really did. We've talked about this. We are said in our day that we're, we're becoming a post-Christian world. We're going beyond Christianity. The funny thing is that what we're doing is returning to pre-Christian standards. In the pre-Christian world, you did not care for other people. They did not have hospitals. They did not have orphanages. They did not have care for people in general. Now, yeah, there were always people who would do some care and had some compassion. But in general, it's the Christian mindset that has brought in hospitals. It's the Christian mindset that has brought in orphanages. Uh, before orphanages happened, if you didn't want your child, you couldn't afford him, you just dumped him on the street. Or worse yet, you took him to the temple and you offered him as a sacrifice. Uh, with Christianity, we've said these children have value. We need to do something for these children that do not have parents, and we've created orphanages. We say these people are, that are sick need, need care, and hospitals have been built. You know, in the Roman army, in the Greek army, if you got hurt in battle and you weren't able to march with your, with your unit, you got left behind. If you got healed, good. If you did not, you didn't deserve to live. You know, they had a very much evolutionary standard. If you were strong enough to live, good. If you weren't too bad, you, we didn't want you to reproduce anyway. You know, evolution is not a new idea. The codification of it is a newer idea, but the ideas behind it, the strength, survival of the, of the fittest is not new. It has always been there. Christianity kind of made the mindset that because we are created in the image of God, everybody has value. And this is the difference. This turns the world upside down when we truly live out our Christian values that God has created and we are special. And they come in and said, uh, those that have been turning the world upside down, this kind of tells us that Paul and Silas have a reputation that's traveling. And maybe not just them, but all Christians. And there's this reputation of when these followers of the way come to your town, your life is going to be turned upside down. They're going to they're make life difficult for you. There's going to be trouble. We know that that happens because every one of the disciples die a martyr's death except for John. And it wasn't because they hadn't tried to murder John. John was boiled in oil and survived. They tried to poison him and he survived. They sent him to the Isle of Patmos, an insane asylum, where all they did was put people freely to do whatever they wanted. And the criminally insane were all over that island and he didn't die. You were expected to die on that island unless you were really, really strong. And he ended up dying of old age. He's the only disciple that did not die a martyr's death. Is that because um, God was protecting him? Obviously. Yeah. yeah. But have to be. That, you know, you don't get boiled in oil and not die. <laughs> and, it's, and it wasn't, and, and he, 
from what we hear in history, he didn't, he didn't get burnt. He was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fire and not even the smell of smoke on him. He was not all scarred because of it. He just, it did not burn him. Uh, why? I don't know why God let him live and all the other disciples had to, you know, had to die. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but God decided he was going to live. You know, um, many of them were beheaded, crucified, quartered, which was a horrible thing to do. And if you don't know what quartered mean, they, they tied you to four animals and, and, and broke you into four pieces, at least. Uh, run, run through with lances. They did not... They did not have easy deaths and yet did not reject Christ. And they were turning the world upside down. They were preaching the gospel everywhere they went. It is great study to see where all these disciples went to and where they, where they, where they preached and how, how lives were changed and how the churches were, were, were turned around by what they taught. And it is a wonderful thing. And then in verse 7 it says, and this Jason received them. <laughs> and their accusation is kind of an interesting thing. They're turning the world upside down, and their accusation is to do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And this is a true statement. They were saying that Jesus is king, not of this world, but they were saying, we have a king. And one of the reasons that people were persecuted through so many of the Caesars were they would not say that Caesar was Lord or God. To not be crucified or not killed during that period of time was during persecution times was real simple. All you had to do was go to this little idol, take a few grains of, of uh, flour, put it on the flame and say, Caesar is Lord. If you did that, you were fine. If you didn't do that, you were executed for whatever way you were executed during that period of time. Many Christians would go in and, and put that grain on the, on the flame and, and declare Caesar's as Lord, then, then repent later. Uh, not a good way to do it, but I mean, I understood, you know, they were afraid for their life. Many other Christians would go... I'm willing to give my life for God. This is one of the reasons that I am so adamant right now. We are facing tribulation here in America and persecution in America. Very soon, if we do not set our mind, we are going to be one that will be willing to say, Caesar is Lord, for fear. But the more that we know that we trust God and that he's in control, the better off that we're going to be. And I really want to keep in our minds the best thing that can happen to us is to die. Because when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The best thing that can happen is to die. Now, I don't really want to spend time in prison and, and, and re-education camps, which is what they're actually talking about, because that's a miserable experience. But you know what? God's still in charge, and there's great opportunity to witness even in those environments, if my mindset is to stand for Christ. And it's very important that we prepare our hearts for the trials that are going to come. The Christian church is going to fall 
at persecution because we are not ready for it, and most of the church is not ready for it. Many of them aren't even saved in the Christian churches, so they're just going to fall no problem. But even in good churches, there are many people in America that are not ready to face persecution because they're just not in that mindset. We preach a prosperity gospel for the most part in, in America that says, if you serve God, everything is going to be hunky-dory. You're going you're gonna to be wealthy, well, uh, healthy, and wise. And that is not what the gospel teaches. Now, there are lots of verses that say we're going to be blessed, that God's going to honor, that the, the great rewards can happen, but there are a lot of verses that say there's going to be a lot of suffering. Christ said, they, they hated me, they will hate you. And I've shared with this group, I have talked to people that have come out from behind the Iron Curtain that have told me that while we're praying for them to be delivered from the Iron Curtain and persecution, the persecuted church has been praying for American churches to get them under persecution because they don't understand why we're not persecuted. They believe that we have compromised the gospel, otherwise we would be persecuted. I tend to agree with them. How much compromise have we made to stay out of trouble? to stay out of having hard times with the world? How many times have we not spoken the truth that God says so that we don't get in trouble? I look at this and I've told people, I expect to be behind, behind bars or in a re-education camp because I have said that things are sin. And I'm not going to recant my statements, which means at some point I will be arrested for hate speech for speaking against certain protected groups and be arrested for it. I'm ready. I'm ready for that. I've been ready for that. I've expected it all my life. You know, and I'm seeing how much our country is changing. Each of us needs to be able to come to the point of, are we going to stand for God or not? Where are we going to be? Where will we stand? Are we willing to be able to say God's word is true and be ready to face things like Paul is facing every city he goes into? Beatings, persecutions, imprisonments. Over and over again, that is what we saw. Are we ready? Are we ready to make a stand for God? That's not going to be easy. And it may be a whole different story when you're facing that tribunal and you're, you're saying, I'm going to stand for God. And when we read the stories, and I want to encourage you, be ready because you want to know what you're facing. Read the story of Tortured for Christ by Richard Warmbrandt. Read the stories of Watchman Nee and the tortures they put him through. Read these stories of all these individuals that have suffered. Read the, the hiding place where Corey Ten Boom gives her story about what they went through after their arrest for serving God. We need to be ready. We need to be mentally ready that we serve a God who can care and keep us. Because we're not going to do it on our own strength. Without God, we can't do it. But with God, all things are possible. And you know, as hard as it is to read, I recommend everybody to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And those of you who have tried to read it or have read it, you know it's a hard book to read. Because he doesn't mince words when he talks about what they went through. It's bad enough when you read the Roman persecution they went through. And it's even worse when you get to what the Catholic Church did to the believers. As they martyred them. 
during the Dark Ages. They were brutal. Not that the previous ones weren't brutal, but the, when it got to the Middle Ages, they were extremely brutal with the way they... And then we get into the Reformation Age. The Reformation Age was just as bad. These, each group was attacking the other group. They all attacked Catholics, but then they attacked each other. And if they had power, they, they killed the other people. It has been an amazing thing to see what people in power will do rather than serve God and show love and mercy and restraint. You know, I, like I said, I believe what I believe very firmly, but I believe other people have the right to be wrong. You know, that's, their, that's their call. You know, now, unfortunately, I'll probably find that I'm wrong on a few things when I get to heaven. <laughs> but we have that right. We have the right to be wrong. As long as I can know what it is I believe and why. And this is something we need to be ready. Jason and the men that they take are saying, these guys are harboring fugitives from Rome who are harboring people that are saying there's another god other than Caesar, another king other than Caesar. Now, this is, this is a big big accusation. What are they saying? These guys are committing treason. These guys are committing treason to Rome. They are promoting another king. What was the ultimate thing they told Pilate that Jesus was saying that he was king? Pilate asked him, are you a king? Jesus' answer was quite interesting. If I was a king, my followers would rise up to battle against you. As it is, I'm here to do what it is. I could call, he goes, I could call 10 legions of angels to deliver me. And Caesar said, uh, Pilate said, you are, you are a king then. And he goes, not of this world. He goes, I am a king, but this isn't, this isn't my kingdom. If this was my kingdom, you'd be in trouble. You know, 10 legions of angels. That would be a lot of angels to, to be called. One angel killed 187,000 people. And Jesus says, I can call 10 legions. That's a lot of people that could be killed. Instantly, just about. And the accusation they're making to them is that he is saying they are promoting treason. <laughs> they are promoting treason and... Verse 8 says, and they were troubled, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the cities when they heard these things. So they kept repeating them. They kept repeating the, the, the accusation. They kept making the statement. The one thing that we have learned over the years, if you keep repeating lies long enough, people start believing them. And it's an amazing thing when, you, when these uh, lies are spoken. You know, I love talking to people and they're going, they're, you know, in America and they go, well, you know, the Constitution has the separation of church and state in it. Nowhere in the Constitution are the words separation of church and state. But you know what? Almost everybody believes that those words are in the Constitution, including well-educated people, including people who supposedly know civics and politics. They believe that those words are in the Constitution. And they're not. Those words come from a letter written by Jefferson when he was president. And ironically, it was written to the Dansbury Baptist Association because they were making a concern that the government was going to get, in there, get into their business and tell them what to do. 
And Jefferson said there's a wall of separation between church and state. So what he said from that was exactly what the Constitution says, that the government can't tell the church what to do. And yet, in our modern days, that, that statement has been turned on its head and used against the churches. You know, and been spoken so many times that people believe that it's a constitution in the Constitution. And I'm amazed how many supposedly smart people I talk to, and they'll tell me that I'm going, that's not in the Constitution. Oh, yeah, it is. Everybody says so. I go, go read the Constitution. It's not in it. And they go, it's got to be. I go, I, and usually I used to carry a Constitution with me. I'm going, here it is. Show me. And even now, if I have a computer, I'll call up the Constitution and go searchable and look for the word separation. It's not in the Constitution. You know, and nowadays, it's real easy because we can search the document. Of course, it's only about a page and a half, two pages long anyway, so it's really not that big a deal <laughs> to, to read the whole thing. But you know, how many times do people believe lies? And here, this lie is being propagated enough that people start believing it. You know, evolution is being taught as fact rather than theory, even though it's still a theory and always will be a theory because it violates science and laws. But you get into the education world and everybody believes it because they've been taught over and over that it's a fact. And they, they assume that it's a fact because they've heard it so many times that they just believe it. And when they hear the evidence that it's not a fact, that's hard because one of the things that's a problem for us when we believe something, it is we are resistant to listen to facts to the contrary. Which is why I believe went right from the beginning. Even as Christians, we have to be willing to let the Bible teach us in spite of whatever we believe. That we will let the Bible teach us. When I was young, I believed that Noah brought two of every animal on the, on the ark. I've discovered over the years, somewhere back 20 years ago, that there were certain animals he brought 14 of. All the clean animals he brought 14 on, on the ark. So there was more than two of certain animals. You know, and I remember learning way back when I was a kid, two of every animal. How hard is it when you get this fact coming in that says the Bible says this? We have to make sure that our, our belief system is malleable to what the Bible says. If we believe something wrong and the Bible clearly tells us that we're wrong, then we need to accept that we were wrong. But it is not easy. It is not easy to say, well, I believe this all my life, and now you're telling me I'm wrong? Even if it's God telling us that we're wrong. And we want to be very careful because this is why it's very important on who we listen to as teachers. Because if you get taught wrong, it's hard. I have met many people who have been taught one thing all their life, a different denomination, a different religion, a different way, you know, a different cult. And you start teaching them the Bible. And what is our human response? How do I mix these diametrically opposed views together? Because I just don't want to believe that I learned wrong. <laughs> and it's hard to release something that has been, that it was wrong. We have to have the attitude, it's wrong, <laughs> scrap it, throw it away, put the new in its place. But that goes against our human nature. It goes against our pride. 
Because if I do that, then I have to admit I was wrong. I was wrong. I was taught wrong. And as human beings, we don't like to be wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong. Even the most humble person doesn't like to be wrong. And that's where it becomes very hard. We have to humble ourselves and say, wow, God, thank you for showing me the truth. I'm not real good at it either. I, I, I understand that if it says it in the Bible, I have to believe it, but it's not easy. It's really hard because it goes against my, my human nature. It goes against you know, the desire that I, you know, to understand that I was wrong. And these guys were brought in. And then it's very interesting. It says in verse 9, And when they had taken security of Jason and other, other they let them go. Now, we don't really know what security is in this case. It could be that they made a pledge saying that if they come, we're not going to keep them in our home anymore. We're going we're gonna to get them rent. It could be that they paid what we would call, uh, uh, great, what's the word I'm looking for? Bond. Yeah, they paid a bond. Uh, they paid bail. <laughs> okay, you know, whatever, whatever term, they did something that made themselves responsible for the truth of their statements. Uh, you know, we're, we're, here's, here's your money, here, here's, your, here's your bond, and we're gonna, we guarantee that we will come back if we're called back to the court. Uh, we pledge that if they show up, we're going to send them away. We're not going to let them come into our house. We don't know exactly what their security was. All right? Um, and the definition in Greek doesn't really help us. It could be, it could be anywhere from a pledge, a bond, uh, a promise. <laughs> uh, we don't know. But basically, they satisfied the judges that they were going to take care of this problem or at least show up to the next court case. <laughs> And they now are released. Now, this is not going to necessarily get them out of trouble with the, with the people. Uh, you know, I even looked into different uh, commentators, and I don't usually go to the commentators, but I've looked at it, and none of them agree either. You know, they all say what well, they gave a promise that they would not keep them in their home. They gave a promise that they would show up. They gave a pledge. They went down the whole night, the, the whole way, because this word means so many things that nobody knows. And so every one of the scholars do whatever they believe to say. <laughs> Suffice it to say, they satisfied the court. <laughs> that whatever the court was asking them to do, and it didn't go through the whole court case, but whatever the court was asking them to do, the judges were asking them to do, they agreed to. Or at least satisfied them that they would take care of whatever it was, whether that was to show up at the next time they were called, or get rid of Paul and Silas. Who knows what their promise was? But they have satisfied the court and went forward. This is an interesting thing about the Bible is it doesn't give us a lot of details about the stuff we might like to be interested in uh, to, to try to figure out. But it also gives us understanding that our court systems have not changed at all over the years. Uh, they, they, they have not changed. We, the things that we know would happen in courts, we know that it... And the judges probably recognized that these guys were making a big deal out of nothing, but now you've got two... Two men, or several men, at least Jason and however brethren they took with them, that seem to be the in innocent parties in here. They're not the ones that are directly being attacked. So the court has to do something to satisfy the, the mob, and yet they're not wanting to put Jason and the, their, their, the guys that they drug into the court, into prison or flogged or anything. So they're trying to do something, and they get a security. 
some kind of form of bail or bond or of, of some nature saying, okay, we're satisfied. You guys are satisfied. We're holding them accountable. We've got <laughs> whatever. And we're going to leave it there because we're out of time uh, because we're going to see what they did <laughs> when they got out of prison, out of, out of, the, out of the court next week. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask you to help us prepare our hearts to to stand for you no matter what happens. Prepare us to know what we, are th what we believe. Help us to learn to study and to understand you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.